I'm thankful for all that's been done already in the house of the Lord this morning. And I hope that you're thankful with me. Let's open our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in Him. His truth endureth forever. And though these words by Peter were penned 2,000 years ago approximately, they still apply to us today so well. That's right. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25 are what we want to cover today. I want to read the first four through 21. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy, if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if, when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if, when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that ye should follow His steps. Amen. Amen and Amen. Let us look back at verses 11 and 12 and remind ourselves of the transition in this epistle to understand what Peter is now giving us. Verse 11, Dearly Beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak evil against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation." Amen. Strangers and pilgrims, this earth is not our home. We're only passing through. And while we're here, we are to conduct ourselves as if this is not our home, that we have a more important place that we're going to, and this place is less important by us not fulfilling the lust of the flesh and the desires of all the worldlings that are around us. We're to look different because we're strangers and pilgrims. We're foreigners. We're aliens to this world. We're the children of God and heaven is our home and the new heaven and the new earth will be our home. It tells us to abstain from fleshly lusts. Number one, that war against our soul. You have desires that are contrary to the will of God. They rage inside you. They rage inside me. And it is it is our job to abstain from them. It is our duty and commandment of this epistle. They war against us. Two, We want to have our conversation honest among the Gentiles. That word honest is not just telling the truth. It means a noble and virtuous life, as I taught you when we were at that text. That whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may buy your good works. So we want to have good works that are visible. So when we're out in the world and we're publicly dealing with society, we want to have our good works showing There's a temptation to be the great Christians, to be great Christians when we're here in this house. There's a temptation to be great Christians at home when we're reading our Bible or with our family and having devotions or whatever the case might be. But the issue here is public good works out where the rest of the world sees them. And the fourth thing is we want to glorify God this way by having such good works be held by those around us because of our noble and virtuous life which is accomplished by abstaining from fleshly lust. Now with that introduction, which is a general introduction, no specific part of your life is mentioned, then the apostle, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, immediately dives into submission. Oh yes, that one wars against the soul, doesn't it? We don't like to submit. And so there's three categories of submission. There's three spheres of authority that are quickly listed here that open up abstaining from fleshly lusts, having an honest conversation, having good works and 
having a reputation that glorifies our Father in heaven. Submission to civil authority, submission to employment authority, and submission to husbands. Bang, bang, bang. This is how the Holy Spirit addresses living as strangers and pilgrims in a way that causes men to see the truth of the gospel by our lives. Earlier this morning, I opened with Matthew chapter 5 and verse 14 where it says, Ye are the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men that they may behold your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. That is so consistent with verse 12 of 1 Peter 2 right here. Those two verses are very good cross-references. And then it immediately goes into submission. And we dealt with verses 13 through 17, last Lord's Day, about submitting to civil rulers. Verses 18 through 25 will cover employment situations that we get into. And then the first six verses of chapter 3 are about wives submitting to husbands. You can understand by the explanation I've just given you and the reminder I've just given you that when Peter, by the Holy Spirit, wants to show us good works, noble and virtuous conduct, conversation that is good before the Gentiles, abstaining from fleshly lusts, he goes after something that bothers all of us, and that is letting someone else be boss. Letting someone else tell us this is the way it's going to be. Let's letting someone else who has faults that we can see tell us what to do, though they may not do it. Jesus said the Pharisees were hypocrites, but they sat in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatsoever they bid you to do, observe and do it. Even though they don't do it. They put burdens heavy on people's backs, but they don't even lift a finger's worth themselves. It didn't matter. What matters is, that is an authority position from God. In that case, it was Moses' seat of authority over the nation of Israel, and the Pharisees filled it, and so Jesus told them to submit to it. And that's the first three verses of Matthew chapter 23. Servants. Okay. Servants. So he gets our attention on what he is speaking about. You know, men can't wait to get to the first six verses of chapter 3. I've been preaching now for over 30 years with some time off in the middle. But I know that men can't wait to get to chapter 3 in the first six verses for the pastor to do some dirty work with their wives and remind them about submission to their husbands. But before the husband gets to chapter 3 in the first six verses, he's got to deal with how he subjects himself to civil rulers, and how he submits himself on the job. That is why, when teaching and preaching about submission to husbands, I will refer to men submitting to authority, whether it's the military or just civil society, or how they submit on the job. And so the Lord gets the men first. Because men, we should always be the examples and the leaders. We should be out front like Abraham was. I know him that he will command his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. And we want to be that way. So, we have an obligation, we have an opportunity, is the way I look at it, a privilege to show our wives a humble, submissive, cooperative, meek, reverential, presumptive commendation, attitude, and actions towards civil authority and employment authority. Then, when your wives have that example at home, and they hear the Word of God pressed on them in a couple of weeks, they have no excuse. You could be giving them an excuse as to why they're not as subordinate as they should be, though I don't think this church has many problems in that direction. But you may be giving them an excuse by not being as submissive as you should be toward the two authority structures that we have here in these verses. No man deserves the submission of his wife if he cannot do better submitting to his boss. Cheerfully, agreeably, reverently, honorably, constantly, zealously. We can do it. You can do it. The devil could not be content under God, so let's be totally unlike him by being content submitting under the authority of bosses. 
Now, in the preparatory email that I sent you yesterday, I had you read two passages last evening, and I hope you did, from Exodus chapter 21 and Deuteronomy chapter 25, Leviticus chapter 25, in which you had described to you hired servants and bond servants. And when we come to the New Testament, whether it's Paul or Peter, we just have the word servant. We're not told whether it's a bond servant or a hired servant. A bond servant is a slave. A bond servant was owned. He was bought for money. He was owned. He was a position. He was a possession. He might be tattooed. He might have a hole through his earlobe with a, some, with a designation there that he was a slave. Slavery is not contrary to the Word of God. Slavery isn't contrary to nature. We don't practice it in this country in that way where you own other people and they work for you and you have them 24-7. But that's a bond servant, and I don't want to spend very much time on that. A hired servant is a person who shows up at work every day and works for you for wages and goes home. He's in control of his own domestic life. He doesn't live on your property. He's not your asset. You don't own him. You didn't buy him. You are just hiring him and contracting with him for a particular job, for a particular period of time, for a particular wage. And so there's these two kinds. And of course, your employment situation is more like the latter one. You're hired servants. And so when we find the word servants here, we, in our generation, in our society, apply it to employees. So it's employees. I have something to say to you, to be strangers and pilgrims with noble and virtuous conduct and good works that will glorify your Father which is in heaven. And I gave you lots of passages yesterday to help fill that out. I let you read the New Testament exhortations to servants. There's more than one. There's more than two. There's more than three. There's more than four. And some of them are right interesting to read. I love the Lord Jesus Christ how he said, How many of you have a servant, and after he's been working in the field all day, this is Luke 17, verses 7 through 10, after he's been working in the field all day, when he comes in, I mean, he's tired. He's been out there all day long. How many of you will say, hey, go get yourself something to eat? Oh, no. Jesus is arguing from something that was a universal principle. When he comes in from the field after working all day, your words would be, hey, It's good to see you. Would you get some new clothes on? And would you fetch supper for me and set the table? And after I eat, then you can have the leftovers. Don't dislike me. Jesus said that's the way it is. That's the way it is. And you know what the less all that was argued for? We are supposed to say after we have done everything that we should do to please God, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. We don't need thanks and praise all the time from Him because all we're doing is what it is our duty to do. I gave you those passages. Ephesians chapter 6, Colossians 3, 1 Timothy 6, Titus 2, Luke 17, Matthew 8. And uh, hopefully they were helpful along with some others in between like Ecclesiastes and Isaiah. But let's look at this passage right here in front of us in verse 18. Servants, be subject. That means to submit. That means to yield. That means to surrender. That means to let someone else be boss. That means to let them tell you how to do it. That means to let them tell you that you're wrong. That means to be quiet and not answer again. That means to subject yourself to them. The Bible says in Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, that servants should not answer again. There are many places, like the one that I just quoted, that needs to have a sense put on it, not to restrain it, but to obviously give what the Lord meant by it when it says, answer again. If your boss calls you into his office and he asks you a question, you should answer his question. If you don't answer his question, you're actually indirectly breaking the statement, answering again, because you're being snotty by not answering. If he asks you a question, he wants you to answer that question. When it says not answering again, that means not coming up with an excuse when he asks you to do something. Not showing by your face or your words or your terminology or by anything that you say that you don't want to do it, that you think it's an unfair request. For instance, when he asks you to do something and you say, well, what about so-and-so? They haven't done that recently. 
That is none of your business. If he asks you who did this last and who's done it the most, then you can go ahead and tell him. But if he says, I want you to go do this, when he says jump, what should you say as a Christian? How high? That is what you should say. And brethren, if the world acted even a little bit like the Bible teaches, wouldn't it be easy to manage people? And do you know what the greatest thing you can give your master is? To make it easy to manage you for the glory of God. It is terrible today to manage people. If you get into a situation where you're offered a position that requires you to manage other people, you weigh it very heavily because there's hardly a salary that's worth it in today's generation. You cannot use uh, the means that they had in this day. Do you know what the word used here in this passage is? To buffet them. You, you, to buffet them. But you can't buffet on the job anymore. So be very careful when you're offered a position in management. I remember a long time ago having it explained to me, a long, long time ago, the difference between a staff position and a line position. A line position is in the hierarchical structure of the organization to where you have departments reporting to you, and a staff position is just an adjunct that helps someone else. Oh, it was no, it was, that was no problem. That was an easy decision to make. Don't even think about me ever being in a line position. The Lord had other ideas. But anyway, I hope that you understand the difference. It's hard to manage people today, but one of the nicest things you can do for your boss and one of the easiest ways to glorify God is to make it easy for Him to manage you. When it says, servants, be subject, that means be humble, submit yourself, yield, give control over to the person that's in authority over you, let him have power, Surrender yourself and yield to Him and His rule. Be submissive. Be dependent. Be subordinate. Be subject. There's so many examples in the Bible. God told Hagar to return to Sarah and submit. Even after Sarah's harsh treatment of Hagar. That would have been rough. But there was the Lord saying, Hagar, go back and submit yourself to Sarah's hand. I'll take care of you and I'll take care of that boy that you're going to have. And Ishmael became a great nation and there's 1.1 or 1.2 billion today that claim as their father, Ishmael. Right. Still, 3,500 years later. That's what it means to submit. There's so many things that could be said. I've already been over the word submission and subjection when we dealt with verse 13, which opened with the word submit. Verse 18 opens with be subject. They mean the same thing. It means to yield and surrender that someone else gets to tell you what to do, even if what they tell you to do, you don't like doing it. Learn to like it. How long should it take you to learn to like it? A half a second. Learn to like it by making a choice that you're going to like it. Women, as soon as we get to verse 1 of chapter 3, it's going to be that you are supposed to be in subjection to your husbands. And verse 5 is going to say the same thing, being in subjection unto their own husbands. So that's what the whole passage is about. It means surrender. The world can talk all they want about rights. You don't have rights, you have responsibilities. And if this generation in this country would think more about responsibilities than rights, the nation would be a whole lot better off than it is. They all think they have rights and forget the responsibilities of submission. A a, a well-working, efficient economy is filled with a bunch of workers that know their place and they have responsibilities rather than rights. Servants, be subject to your masters. And God chooses the term master here for your work boss because slavery was in place in those days, and so they used the terminology of slavery. There's nothing in the Bible, there's nothing in in nature to condemn slavery, but it's illegal in this country, and it was done away with 150 years ago. You know, a slave that was converted as a Christian, Paul didn't care if he was a slave, and Paul said, you can go ahead and be a slave, because after all, you're the Lord's freeman. But if you can be made free easily, and it won't be a big problem, you can probably be Serve the Lord better as a free man, so go ahead and do it. In 1 Corinthians 7, verses 20 through 22, we read it last Lord's Day. I would appeal to that passage that if you're in a job that becomes unbearable, while you're bearing the unbearable, you should bear it like a Christian. And that means you should go to work every day like Jesus went to the cross. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. Right. 
And we're going to get to that very shortly. You should go to work the same way that Jesus went to the cross. You should go cheerfully, obediently, respectfully, and make help that company make money and help that boss have a great department to the best of your ability while you look for another job and quit. Because as I've taught for 30 years, your one right in the Bible is to quit, and it's taught in 1 Corinthians 7, 20-22, if you can be made free and use it better, then be made free. But until then... And when you quit, you give a proper notice that's a Christian notice. You do not leave a department or a company high and dry. You show honor and respect to that position of authority, that dignity of a master that's over you. Servants, be subject to your masters. You know, what's interesting here to me about this passage, and I've tried to share one interesting thing with you already. When... The Peter, by the Holy Ghost, wants to teach us about live as strangers and pilgrims in the earth. He doesn't teach us to go to a monastery. He immediately goes into relationships that we have out in society. He calls us strangers and pilgrims, but then immediately it's relationships with the government, relationships with employment bosses, and relationships in marriage. Whether, and in this particular case, the husband's not even converted. Isn't that interesting? Here's another interesting point. When Peter takes up the subject of employment, you know, I I see the words servants and I get excited. All right, we're going to have a lesson on the Christian work ethic. We're going to have a lesson on diligence. Peter's going to be pulling from from the book of Proverbs where it says, the hand of the diligent shall be made fat. Seest thou a man diligent in his work? He shall stand before kings. He shall not stand before mean men. It's going to be about diligence. Well, that is certainly taught in the Bible, brethren. That is certainly taught in the Bible. But you know what Peter comes after? In order for us to war against the lusts of our flesh, he comes after submission. There are some of us. Thankfully, I get to hide in an office most of the day. There are some of us that your opinion is known presently on your face and in your body language. You have got to learn to rule that because that's not being in subjection as thoroughly as you could be and should be. When you are told to do something that you don't want to do. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear. I've already mentioned, I hope, answering again. Titus chapter 2 says, don't answer again. Don't retort back. And you know, in our society, where bosses are as good and as gentle as they typically are, in comparison to having someone with a whip, you know, a man sitting there with a whip would tend for you not to answer again. What was the error in that day? The servant wouldn't say a word. And the book of Proverbs deals with that. That is an affront to the master when you won't respond when he asks you a question. We want to be open and transparent with our bosses to the point they want us to be. To Anything beyond that, even one word we do not want to mention. Lord, help us to be all that we should be on the job. I look at this passage and instead of teaching diligence on the job, instead of teaching faithfulness, instead of teaching persistence, instead of teaching perseverance... It teaches submission. And that's the issue. And that's all Peter's really going to deal with is us yielding and surrendering to a boss. And he's going to tell us it doesn't matter what kind of a boss. And really, you can't even show God anything worthy of commendation or praise until you have a bad boss. When a boss says jump, the employee should say how high. That is subjection. You know, it may sound old-fashioned, but using sir is certainly appropriate and it certainly separates you from others if you address your boss and his boss as sir. Right. Yes, sir. No, sir. They, they may even try to dissuade you from using sir because it's so uncommon and they feel embarrassed that you're recognizing that they have authority. It's a shame that we live in a society like that, but give it a shot. And when you're addressing someone that's over you, and especially your boss's boss, you address them as Mr. So-and-so. He's not your buddy. He's not your golfing partner. 
Show yourself in subjection by yielding and honoring. When the Bible says, honor to whom honor is due. When the Bible says in verse 17, honor all men. It's talking about our bosses. It's talking about dignities. It's talking about rich men. Men who are exalted by God's blessing on their lives, either, either with authority positions or with His blessings upon them financially, we should address them with terms of respect. That's a Christian. That's what Christians do. It's part of being subject to your masters with all fear. I'm very glad to know that there is an ancient outline that's being looked at by some of you young men. I went and looked at it myself recently because I was kind of surprised. I hope you know when I'm speaking as a fool that 1 Peter chapter 2 doesn't say anything about diligence. It just mentions submission. Because do you know what? There are pagans. There are pagans that work hard. There's actually quite a few pagans that work harder than most Americans work. But the most distinguishing thing you can do on the job is to submit and to submit cheerfully and not to run down the boss and not to criticize company policy and not to be gathering at the water fountain and saying certain things about what's going on there. You can show a cheerful attitude towards your boss. Others will know when you are being mistreated. If you're being mistreated, which seldom happens today, and it certainly hardly ever happens like it did in Peter's day, but when it does happen, others will know that it's happening to you, and you have an opportunity to respond cheerfully and show them a completely different character. That is rarer than hardworking men. And I hope you'll remember that. It says, with all fear. We assume this fear is the same fear as we should have for God. A reverential desire to please and not disappoint in authority. But we look at this phrase here, with all fear, we apply it to both God and the boss. Because when we go to Ephesians 6 and we go to Colossians chapter 3, it tells us, that it's the fear of God. And in context here, we know that it's being doing something that is thankworthy and pleasing in the sight of God because that's mentioned. But when we go to other places in the Bible, like Malachi chapter 1 and verse 6, here's what it says about bosses. A son honoreth his father, and a servant his master. If I then be a father, where is mine honor? And if I be a master... Where is my fear? Saith the Lord of hosts unto you. So fear toward a boss is a proper thing. But that fear toward a boss should never compete with the fear toward God because then you become in the snare of human fear or you become a man pleaser, which the Bible condemns. We want to fear both. And we fear the one because of the other. In Proverbs chapter 24 and verse 21, it says, Fear thou the Lord and the King. And it puts them in that order. We actually fear the king because we fear God. And then what's added to that, not only do we fear the king because of conscience toward God, but we also fear the king because he's got a tool that he carries. What is the tool that he carries? Is it a, is it a, oh, it's a sword. Yes. So for conscience and sword, we're submissive to kings. Our first fear is toward God. We want to reverently please God and not disappoint Him in any part of our lives. And see, He handpicked that man you work for. And for those of you that own your own business, you can't excuse yourselves one bit. Your customers are your masters while you're on the job. You're a hired servant for shorter periods of time. For these guys that work for two years at a time, you may work for 20 minutes these days, 20 minutes these days, two hours these days. Doing a project, you have someone over you who is telling you they want it done this way. And they can become picky, can't they, Mr. Green? Sometimes when you're doing something for them, once you take down four trees in their yard, they see how good it looks and they say, well, what about this tree over here? And they think that they should be able to take the total price, divide it by four, and then multiply it by five, and that's going to be the new price, not realizing that this next tree needs a crane to get it down. And you're going to be cheerful toward them. So don't anyone try to excuse yourself. You have a boss on a shorter time frame, and you actually have a more difficult relationship because they're new every couple hours or couple days. 
But it doesn't change. It's still the same rules we submit. We're in subjection. In fact, I've been into businesses before, and I think you've all seen this sign. Rule number one, the customer is always right. Rule number two, see rule number one. And that's just a good attitude to have. But brethren, we want to do it for the Lord's sake. I want, this should be positive to us. We live in the most pampered work environment the world has ever seen. The number of hours, what is expected, the amount of breaks, the lunch hours, the vacation time, the paid time off, sick time, all they can't do anything to you. They can't abuse you sexually. They can't abuse you by your age. They can't do anything. And so we, we have a, a wonderful opportunity to let our lights shine before the world. Other than the fact we can't truly submit to suffering like the Lord Jesus Christ does, because how often do you really suffer on the job? The suffering is, is so rare and it's so light compared to this passage understood in its historical context. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear. Do you show all fear to your boss? All respect, all reverence for his office. Yes, sir. No answering again. No body language. If he gives you the, a, a, a nasty job over and over and not others, it's, be, it's because maybe you're more submissive to him. You say, well, I'm being abused because of my submission. Uh-huh. Does that sound familiar with anyone else you know in the pages of the New Testament? It sounds like the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And that's exactly what we want to be like on the job. The Lord will pay. If you read some of those verses I gave you, and I want you to turn there right now, because if you didn't read them, I want you to know that they're in the Bible. Colossians chapter 3. Do you want to be blessed in your life? What you do on the job is so important. I want you to realize that when God addresses us as strangers and pilgrims in the earth, which makes it sound like all we do is sit around and read the Bible, pray, and think about heaven. That is the opposite of the fact. What we do is we get up early and we go into work and we apply ourselves with our might. And whatsoever our hand finds to do, we do it with our might. For we know that there is no labor nor device in the grave where we're all going. Because that's what the Bible teaches. There is a balance to all of this, brethren. When you read these different passages of Scripture, and do not take me the wrong way, but there aren't verses that tell you to go home and read your Bible. In the New Testament, it doesn't say servants. Read your Bible every night. You should be reading your Bible because of what it says in Psalm 119 and Psalm 19. And we have a blessing that most of those people didn't have. They didn't have 66 books all bound up nice and neat beside their bed on a bed night stand, on a nightstand, or on a coffee table, or in their library. Dozens of copies. Colossians chapter 3. Brethren, look at these verses. Let's go to work tomorrow and do the best. If you say, well, you don't have to. Well, I did. And I would. And if it wasn't foolish, too foolish to say it, I would tell you I'd love to clone myself and go back and do it again. I could do it better than I did the first time. And I thank God for the wisdom of His Word. I got an email yesterday from a brother talking about the mistakes he made in the job. But you know, if we could go back, we could do better. But we did the best we could with the light that we had. And we're thankful for the light that we had. But the Lord's given us so much. And all you young men, look at these verses. Servants, verse 22. Obey in all things. So what's accepted? What if he says, wash my car? You have finished your day on the job. You've worked eight hours, ten hours. And he says, before you go home, would you take this hose, bucket, sponge, and soap and go out and wash my car? What are you going to say to him? That's not in my job description. Is that what you're going to say? You could say it. That's what everyone else would say. But no, go out and wash his car. Let it be the best wash he's ever had. Let it be the fastest wash he's ever had by hand. Obey in all things. Your masters according to the flesh. Look at this flesh. We have fleshly relationships in this life. 
Bodily relationships, earthly relationships, not with eye service. Don't just do it to make him happy as men pleasers, because our goal isn't to please men, but in singleness of heart, you have one overdriving motive, and that is fearing God. We are doing it for the Lord's sake. Do you have to report this afternoon? For the Lord's sake, as unto the Lord, fearing God. Verse 23, and whatsoever ye do, whatever he asks you to do, whether it's washing his car after your hours of engagement at your normal duties or those normal duties themselves, whatsoever ye do, do it heartily. Be passionate. Be fervent about serving your master as to the Lord and not unto men. You're not doing it for him. You're doing it for God. You're climbing that tree for the Lord. You're picking up the yard afterwards for the Lord. You're washing the equipment for the Lord. I hate washing the truck every day. You're doing it for the Lord. And if you were wise, you would know you're doing it for your boss as well, and you're doing it for your company as well, and you're doing it for yourself as well, because if you could put these four verses together, you would know that your increase comes from doing it the right way, and doing it the right way every time. Whatsoever you do, do it heartily. Oh, I love... Do you know that it's a privilege to go to work tomorrow, you young men? It's a privilege. It's not a burden. It's not, it's not, uh, you're not a prisoner. It's a privilege. Let me quote it again. And whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. For there is no work in the grave whither thou goest. Work is a good thing. Work is a wonderful thing. Work is its own reward. Can you believe that our fathers in this nation once believed that? They had a saying that a job well done is its own reward. That sounds strange in this society, but anyone who's ever tried it knows that it's true. To finish a job, wow, look at that. It's done, it's done right, it's done well, and it was done speedily, and money's been made. Do it heartily. I love the Bible. What sort of thy hand finds to do, do with thy might. Texts like this. Shouldn't they be thrown up in PowerPoint presentations at annual meetings? Company officers meetings? Texts like this. We have a Bible that addresses every part of our lives and it addresses it better than the world even knows how to address their employees. As to the Lord, not unto men, knowing. This, this is what I came to this passage for. Know something about going to work tomorrow. Knowing that of the Lord, ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance. You're going to inherit all things. The universe is yours. Knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. How do you serve the Lord Christ? On the job. How do you serve the Lord Christ? In the Air Force. How do you serve the Lord Christ? On the job. This afternoon if you have to. On the job. You serve the Lord Christ. I went to a local Christian university in this city, and it wasn't only there because I had heard it all my life, that the only way to serve the Lord Christ was to be in full-time Christian ministry. had to be a pastor or a missionary. If you weren't a pastor or a missionary, but you got a degree in accounting or cinema, you were a reprobate. That That was the term that was used. It was used lightly, but you were a reprobate because... You weren't serving the Lord Christ because you weren't in full-time Christian service. Where's that found in the Bible? Do you know what it says in the Bible? This is the closest expression that it gets in the entire Bible to full-time Christian service. For ye serve the Lord Christ. How do you serve the Lord Christ? By going to your earthly, fleshly job tomorrow and doing a great job at it. I love the Lord and His Word. For ye serve the Lord Christ. You men, when you go to work tomorrow, you're serving the Lord Christ. And remember that the reward is the inheritance of all things. Verse 25, but, whole brethren, young men, but, he that doeth wrong, doeth wrong where? On the job, against your boss. He that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done, and there is no respect of persons. God doesn't care what you do in church on Sunday. God doesn't care if you lead in prayer in the back room. God doesn't care if you get up and do a psalm. God doesn't care if you lead the singing or lead in prayer. 
What do you do on the job in this particular context? And if you do wrong, you'll be judged for it. He'll receive for the wrong which he hath done. This is the word of the Lord to us. Back to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear. All fear, brethren. This fear is toward God and toward men. There should be no lack or weakness in obeying your boss. I hate this society and generation that we live in where these reprobate teenagers go around with these t-shirts that say, No fear! With an exclamation point. There should be fear. If you were listening on Wednesday evening, a number of the passages that we went to in speaking about civil authority said that they do things without fear when there should be fear. The problem in our society is authority is too weak. Authority doesn't apply itself or assume its rightful authority given to it from God in order to instill fear in us. So we've got to get the fear in us from it by coming in here. And I get a few minutes, so I present it intensely. Because I believe it's the Word of God. I'm not going to apologize for it, and I'm not going to water it down. This is the Word of the Lord. I am sorry that the world doesn't operate this way. But this is the way that it should operate. 1 Peter 2, with all fear. Okay, then it says in verse 18, not only to the good and gentle, not only to the good and gentle, being in subjection to them as your masters, submitting yourself and yielding yourself to a boss with all fear, not only to the good and gentle. Most of you have good and gentle bosses. They're nice to you. They're almost like a buddy, which has its own temptation. Because he treats you like a buddy, and he wants you to treat him like a buddy, there is a temptation for that relationship to become too familiar, and then you don't practice what the Lord wants you to practice. And you have got to guard yourself so that you practice it and show him the authority and reverence that he deserves because of his office. Good and gentle. We should be in subjection to good and gentle bosses. We should, to good and gentle bosses, do it with all fear. We should, to good and gentle bosses, yield and surrender ourselves and do whatever they want us to do. And that's all it says about that. (laughs) Not only to the good and gentle, because that should be pretty easy. A Christian hears the Word of God presented, servants, be subject to your masters with all fear. They can do it to a good and gentle boss. But that isn't the real issue. The real issue that Peter wants to go after, and this passage is a very useful passage of Scripture for you to use with anyone in any sphere of authority that finds it difficult to submit because the one in authority is forward, is wicked, is obnoxious, is presuming, is cruel, is abusive. This passage is precious. This passage is powerful. I wish that you would all remember this passage right here. Because it says not only to the good and gentle. There is an idea today that is in all of our hearts, but is more commonly expressed today. If my husband were a better husband, I'd submit to him. Whoa, wait a minute. Where does that hogwash come from? That isn't from the Bible. Right. What your, how your husband treats you doesn't have a thing to do with your submission. Well, if my parents were nicer to me, I'd obey and honor them like the Bible says. What are you talking about? That isn't in the Word of God. It doesn't matter how your parents treat you. There's an office that you're to be respecting. It's Moses' seat. Who cares that there are Pharisees in it? And who cares that those Pharisees are hypocrites? It's Moses' seat. Well, if my boss was fair with me, he didn't keep his word. He told me in a remark six months ago, you've been listening to it and thinking about it for six months, six months ago he told me that I was going to be promoted to such and such. If he treated me right and he kept his word, I'd be the kind of employee that the pastor... What does that have to do with it? He's in an office. So what? He doesn't keep his word. Brethren, you just got an opportunity and a privilege from heaven to show Christian character that you cannot otherwise show. You cannot show it to a good and gentle boss. You can only show a little tiny bit. 
That's why it says not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. When we read that word froward, disposed to go counter to what is demanded or what is reasonable. Oh, yuck. An unreasonable boss. Perverse. A perverse boss? Difficult to deal with. You mean a difficult to deal with boss? Hard to please. A hard to please boss? I'm supposed to submit to him? I'm supposed to be cheerful to a hard to please? Critical? Negative? Picky customer? Yes. Ye are the light of the world. Let's go out of here and show the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ by the way that you conduct yourself on the job. And I'm sorry that I can't go with you tomorrow morning. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. The froward. Let me read you one verse. I've got many that define the word. It's Proverbs 17.20. It says this, He that hath a froward heart findeth no good. Uh-oh. You mean a, you're talking about a boss that never finds any good in what I do? He never commends me. He never praises me. He never gives me a promotion. There's never an email circulated in the company about what a great guy I am. He never finds any good. Wives, get ready. You know, it's, it's, it's a few weeks away. But all you men and, and you women that are working out there, a forward man is someone who finds no good. So you've got a boss that's just critical and negative, picky, perverse, unreasonable, difficult to deal with, does not do what is expected of bosses. It's just flat out wrong the way he treats you. All right. You have a privilege. You have an opportunity. Only when he's mistreating you and doing what is wrong while you're doing what is right, do you have an opportunity to show Christian character. How will you show Christian character when you have a good and gentle boss that is super nice to you and gives you a little pop every six months? How will you show your Christian character? So it says also to the froward. A froward boss. He might be abusive, hard, harsh, critical, sarcastic, demanding, and unmerciful. There are some. He may be a bully, not keep his word, make fun of you, promote others over you, give you the worst jobs, pay you less than your peers, review you unmercifully, spread rumors, not protect you from others spreading rumors, give you more than you can get done and expect you to get it done. So what if you have a boss like that? That's a forward boss. Always remember this passage. Only then can you really show your Christian character. Because it goes on to say in the next verse, for this is thankworthy. Finally, you have done something worthy of thanks. That's what thankworthy means. Worthy of thanks. Deserving gratitude or credit. Conduct worthy of praise. For this is thankworthy. Now, who's doing the thanking? God is. Because look what it says at the last part of verse 20. This is acceptable with God. God's doing some thanking. Forward bosses, forward bosses, by the definition of a forward boss, is not given to a whole lot of thankfulness. But other men, remember, the reason that we have this passage is that while these Jews that were third-class citizens because they were Jewish and they were Christian, while they were working out in the world, if they would conduct themselves in a certain way, they would bring glory to God because others would recognize, you know what? They're a Jew, they're a Christian, and they're getting persecuted. That is not right. While the other employees sit in their cubes and they hear a boss tearing into a Christian Jew three cubes down in an office setting, in an office setting, they can hear all that going on. That is not fair. And all they can hear is, yes, sir. Yes, sir. I will do better, sir. Yes, sir. This is thankworthy. And so that those others, seeing that, beholding it, knowing that they're a Christian, when God visits them, and he visits some of them, according to verse 12, they'll glorify God in that day of visitation because of the response of that Christian toward the abuse of a froward boss. This is thankworthy. If a man for conscience toward God, brethren, let's make sure everything we do on the job, with our government, in our marriages, 
in, with our children, in our church, with our neighbor. Everything we do is driven by conscience toward God. Let's let everything be directed that way. There's always one overriding motive when you're working on the job, and that is your conscience toward God. Paul carefully rejected men-pleasing so that you would have a single heart toward the Lord. We read it in Colossians chapter 3. Eye service is only acceptable if it's somebody watching what you're doing toward the Lord. Then it's okay. True fear and love of God. The true fear and love of God causes men to submit to bosses that otherwise would be very hard. Because we do it out of conscience toward God. Knowing that He's commanded it, knowing that God expects it, makes it easier to obey their tasks. Knowing that God accepts and delights in such conduct and shows that it's comparable to Jesus Christ, His Son, makes it easier to do it. So it says, if a man for conscience toward God endure grief. The idea, here's the idea as it's expressed today. I don't have to put up with this. Ever heard those words? I don't have to put up with this. Yes, you do. Because God said, put up with it. Yes, you do have to put up with it. They think, because our country thought, as soon as it reaches a place that authority no longer serves my best interests, I'll get rid of that authority and get new authority. And so, marriage, when they don't like it, go get another one. Children, run away from home. I'll live in an environment where I get treated right. Blow out of jobs. Break up authority wherever they can. Leave a church. I just don't like that pastor. He keeps stepping on my toes. You ought to thank him and put extra in the box when he steps on your toes. That's just a negative, wrong attitude according to what the Word of God teaches. I don't have to put up with this as false. You are bound to to godly ways of exit only. And God said that even though they may be abusing you, you should be obeying them. This is the Word of the Lord to servants. Verse 19, for this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief. Because we have a conscience toward God, we are willing to endure that grief. Joseph, when he was on the job, what was driving Joseph? Conscience toward God. When Mrs. Potiphar laid hold of him, did he, did he run away from her and get out of her hands because of thinking about Mr. Potiphar? No. Because of God. How can I commit this great sin against God? When Paul was in Acts chapter 23, Paul was on trial for his life. And he said, I have, I've obeyed God with a good conscience from the beginning. And, and Ananias, the high priest, said, smack him on the face. So they slapped him on the face. And Paul said, God will smite you, you whited wall. And they said, is that the way you talk to the high priest? And Paul said, brethren, I wish not that it was the high priest, because God has said, you should not revile the gods nor speak evil of the ruler of the people. Right. First five verses of Acts 23. Why did he do that? Out of conscience toward God because it's written in the Bible. And that's pretty abusive to have somebody, when you're standing there on trial and you say something in your defense and then you get smacked, contrary to the law, which Paul was politely enough, polite enough to inform them that it was contrary to the law, we submit. Your grief and suffering under a froward master will not be your fault. It'll be the froward master's fault So it is truly wrong. Look at what it says in this verse. Enduring grief. You mean I should go ahead and submit and obey my boss and do a good job even if my job has become griefsome? Definitely. If you're too weak to handle it, then find another job. But until you find the other job, you owe that boss and that company everything you can give them. It has nothing to do with the fact that you are enduring grief. You should endure it because Christians endure it and Jesus endured the cross, which is going to be explained to us in the last four verses of this chapter. The fact that they are wrong. Look what it says. Suffering wrongfully. When a wife says, but he's wrong. 
When an employee says, but they're wrong. When a citizen says, but they're wrong. Of course they're wrong. We live in the world. We're strangers and pilgrims here. It's not going to all be right until we get to heaven. Of course they're wrong. And they're wrong repeatedly. And so we suffer in a, in a country, in a job, in a marriage, where there are things that are done wrong, but that does not alter the authority. Right. Suffering wrongfully. You're suffering, they're wrong, you're enduring grief that they're causing, but you are still to subject yourself out of conscience toward God while you're on the job. This is the passage. There is no other way to explain it. There is no reason to modify it. There's no reason to look for excuses out of it. This is the passage, and I've given you your out. Call a headhunter when you get home and find yourself a new job. But if you don't have a right attitude about the one that you're leaving, I can pretty well tell you that the Lord is not going to bless your efforts, and the next employer could be worse. Because of Colossians 3.25. Because you have done wrong. You're supposed to endure that grief, and you are supposed to suffer wrongfully. Because that is thankworthy toward the God of heaven. Because while we're in this world, listen, is there anyone in here who's been a perfect husband? Because I want to go to lunch with you afterwards. I'll buy to share in your wisdom. Is there a perfect husband in here? Is there a perfect father and mother? Is there a perfect master? Is there a perfect pastor? I know none. That does not alter the authority. And for imperfect, for people that are imperfect being in authority, to have them believe and understand and practice this passage is wonderful. It's utopia, as much utopia as it can get while we're on earth. It doesn't matter that you're suffering wrongfully. Of course they're wrong. We all know that. Everyone that's under authority is going to be under authority of someone who is wrong from time to time. Verse 20, for what glory is it? Do you deserve any glory if, when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? Okay, so you've lost, you've lost the company cow. You've dropped a chainsaw 40 feet from a tree. You've driven a company truck off the road. You lost some paperwork on a loan that would have shown the loan committee not to make the loan. So you've cost them some money. And so they pull you aside and you get buffeted. You get a whipping. And you stand there and you take it like a man. I'm a Christian. I'm going to take it like a man. But it's your fault. You come to work late. And the boss meets you out in the lobby. And there's 20 other people in the lobby listening as he tears into you for being late. And you stand there and you take it. Yes, sir. That is what doesn't count for glory. That is what doesn't count for the praise of God. That is not thankworthy because you deserve the tongue lashing. You deserve to be buffeted by his mouth and his speech because you were at fault. And so it says in verse 20, for what glory is it? You don't have any glory. There's no really glory in the matter if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently. That doesn't prove anything. So while you're cutting down the four trees... No, let's work on a plumber. So while you're working on some plumbing in a house, the previous job had some freshly laid asphalt, and you walk across their white carpet. You do a great job at the plumbing, but as you're leaving, the homeowner deducts 200 bucks for steam cleaning from the plumbing job because you walked some asphalt onto their white carpet and they tear you out as being a disgrace to your profession. And you take it. You stand there with your head hanging. You're right. I'm sorry. Do you know what the passage is saying? There's no glory in that. It's your fault. You deserve the tongue lashing. Can every plumber that's in this room right now accept that I just used you as an example? We all want to be used as examples. We want to make this as practical as we possibly can. What glory is it, the Lord says? Peter says by the Holy Spirit, what glory is it if you're at fault and then you get punished or buffeted by your master or your employer? You take it patiently. You haven't proved anything. It isn't thankworthy. God doesn't owe you thanks. You haven't done anything acceptable to God because it's your fault. 
So the second half of the verse says, but, oh, we love those buts, but if when ye do well, a perfect plumbing job, everything is working better than it has ever worked. Everything is cleaner than when it was when the plumber arrived. But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. Now the homeowner this time says, that job only took you 30 minutes. And you're charging me for a whole hour and for truck time? Are you kidding me? I'm not going to pay you all that. Now can you do well? And handle that situation. If you're on the boss, can you handle it? When you do well, and then it says, you suffer for it, even though you're doing well, when you take that patiently, this is acceptable with God. That is how we please God. Jesus Christ was as right as He could be. They were as wrong as they could be. He submitted Himself perfectly to them and the death of the cross. It wasn't the loss of 40 bucks. And hopefully He could reason with that customer very gently. Not answering again in a foolish, retortful, wicked way, but a gentle way. Jesus went to the cross and died, though perfectly right and them perfectly wrong. This is acceptable with God. When we look at this passage... We want to see that there is certain conduct that is thankworthy, verse 19. There is certain conduct that is worth glory, first line of verse 20. And there is conduct that is acceptable with God. Those things should attract us. Those things should attract us to be thankworthy, to have something worth glory, and to do something that is acceptable with God. And then it says, for even hereunto were ye called. What were we called to? We were called to suffer wrongfully. We were called to doing what is doing well and suffering for doing well. For even hereunto. What's the hereunto? The hereunto is doing well and suffering for it. You were called to it because it's part of the Christian religion. While we are strangers and pilgrims in this world, we show a meek, suffering spirit and attitude toward the relationships and responsibilities around us like the Lord Jesus Christ did. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us. Jesus Christ suffered for you. He went to the cross for you. His religion asked you to bear the cross for Him. This is our religion. He gave us the example. Look what it says. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow His steps. Jesus did everything perfectly in the sight of God and in the sight of men that had any sense of judgment at all. They couldn't get their accusations against Him to agree at all. We were called to this. This is the Christian religion. To be mistreated under authority and to submit to it. Pilate said, Don't you know that I have authority to kill you or to free you? Jesus said, you'd have no authority at all unless it were given to you from heaven. And therefore, the greater responsibility is those that delivered me to you, putting the burden on the Jews. Whenever you read anything or hear anyone say that it wasn't the Jews that killed Jesus, remember what Jesus said about who killed him. They were just using Pilate because they couldn't kill him themselves. And when Pilate gave them permission to go ahead and kill him themselves, they didn't want to do it. They wanted him to do it, and they just kept pressing him until he did do it. For even hereunto were ye called. That is, to suffer, though doing well, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example. You know, liberals teach, real true Christian liberalism is teaching that Jesus of Nazareth is not God, and that he only came to be an example. Jesus is God in the flesh, And Jesus died a substitutionary death for our sins. That's just too gross for them. They can't handle that and they reject it. Jesus is God. Jesus did die a substitutionary death. However, we will not flush what they say about Jesus. And that is that He's an example because this passage says that Jesus also gave us an example on the cross. Now, there was a legal transaction taking place on the cross that is of the greatest importance, but after that, it's the example He gave us of suffering wrongfully. When you go to work 
and you are told to do a nasty job that you don't want to do, when you go to work and you haven't been given the raise that you were promised, when you go to work and they make fun of you, when you go to work and whatever happens that you consider onerous, that you consider irritable, that you consider painful, and makes you wish that you could quit and get away from that job, just remember that is the only time that you can be like the Lord Jesus Christ. Because there was no part of His crucifixion, His torture, and His trial that was a picnic. It was suffering abuse every step of the way. And so it says, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us. Also, we suffer for Him, He suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow His steps. When you go to work tomorrow morning early, and you run into something that you weren't looking forward to, or the day is hard, and you're criticized, the Lord Jesus Christ was criticized for countless things until they finally drummed up enough charges against Him to crucify Him. And so we have a job for us ourselves tomorrow. We go to work like Jesus Christ went to the cross. The hard thing is, most of you don't even face any real persecution on the job. Most of you don't face forward bosses. It's exceptional things that they might do once in a while. Usually your bosses are good and gentle. And admit that to yourselves. Compared to being a slave, compared to being a 24-7 piece of property of a slave owner, your job, what you get paid, how you get to live, the freedom that you have, you are so blessed. But here's the rules. Here's how we should perform on the job. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow His steps. Ye are the light of the world. When you go to work tomorrow, be the light of the world. And be in subjection to your bosses with all fear, even to the froward. And even though you're suffering wrongfully, and even though you're enduring grief, it's worth glory. God says it. It's worth thanks and praise. God said it. It is acceptable to Him. God said it. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.